So who is Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? And what does faith in Jesus actually accomplish? And I'm going to try to answer those three questions from today's short text. So let's start with our first question. Who is Jesus? If you like to take notes, if you go to the back of your worship guide, there's some blanks that you'll be able to fill in there, but there's also space to take notes as we go along. And the first question is printed there. Who is Jesus? This is a question that separates Christianity from every other religion. Our understanding of Jesus is different. Our understanding of his identity is different from everyone else's. And this question alone has been kind of the the, the line drawn in the sand between orthodoxy and unorthodoxy, between those who are in the church and those who are outside of the church. So it seems important we should be able to answer the question of who is he? So who is Jesus? Here's your next blank, your first blank, in fact. The Christian faith professes that Jesus is true man and yet eternal God. That's a quote from Calvin's Institutes, book two. The Christian faith professes that Jesus is true man and yet eternal God, which demonstrates his position as Lord or king over humanity. So he is both God and man, and that fact demonstrates his lordship or his kingship over all Humanity. So Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is God of the universe. And when God of the universe became a man in his mother's womb, his role as the Lord of all humanity became abundantly clear. As God and man knit together, he clearly becomes chief among us, the one to whom we all owe our, our love, our devotion. He is Lord. And we see this powerful, mysterious truth of the Christian faith in today's text. In this text, we see Jesus exercising the power of God. We see him acting as though he's the king of the world. How? Well, first, here's your next blank. We see that Jesus had the mind and intuition of God. He had the mind and intuition of God. So Jesus comes into this town. He's been there before Cana. He made water into wine here before. And when he enters into town, he already knows what people are thinking. He already knows what people are expecting. And what were they interested in? They weren't interested in him. They wanted to see another miracle. They wanted to see a spectacle. They wanted to be entertained. Look at verse 46 in chapter four once more. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, which is some distance from there, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That seems like kind of a crass response. To a guy whose child is sick and and near the point of death say, ah, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Here's something interesting. In the original language, in the Greek, the word you there is not you singular. It's actually you plural. It's like saying y'all. So this man, this individual comes to him and says, can you please come? My son is near the point of death. And how does Jesus respond? Let's look again and read it like a southerner. So Jesus said to him, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. The father asked for his son's healing, but Jesus addresses the crowd. Unless you, the crowd, 
believe. See these signs and wonders you won't believe. And what the author is doing here and what Jesus is doing is he's making a contrast between what this father wants and between what the crowd wants. This father was not there for a show. He was there for a totally different reason. But they, the crowd, were there for the wrong reason. That's what we see in the, in the narrative. But underneath all this, we see something about Jesus. He had divine insight. He knew something about these people's minds, their intentions, their hearts that only God could know. Jesus had the mind and intuition of God. But that's not all. Here's your next blank. Jesus also had the creative and recreative power of God. So he didn't just have God's mind. He also has God's power. Who is the Christian God? The Christian God is the God of the Jews named Yahweh. And who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the God who made himself known in the Jewish scriptures, also known as the Old Testament. And Yahweh is the creator God, the one God who made all things from nothing. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he comes with the power of Yahweh, able not only to create, but also to recreate. He turns water into wine, and he also puts broken creation back into order. Look at verse 49. Let's see his power. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. Who can do this? Who can simply speak a word and this child who is hours and hours away can be healed of a deadly fever? Who can do that? The creator can. The one who spoke and everything came into being from nothing simply because he said it. This same one can speak a sentence and heal from a remarkable distance. Jesus had the mind and the understanding of God, but he also had the creative and recreative power of God. And here's how that culminates in our text. It's your next blank. Jesus' identity and position as God-man invites the love and servitude of all humanity. His position as a God-man, as our Lord, invites the love and servitude of all humanity, regardless of social status, national heritage, or religion. So the contrast in the text is between a bunch of Jews who really don't want Jesus. They want entertainment. And who's this dad? He's an official of the Roman government. So this official whose son is healed, he's one of two things. He's either an outsider, a Roman, someone who has come in to oppress Israel. Roman occupation was not invited by most people and certainly not by the Jews. So he's either a Gentile who is an oppressor of the people of God or, maybe worse, he's a Jew who has sold his people out. He heard the salary they were offering and said, you know what, I'll go work for the big guys in town. He's working for their overlords. We don't know which one he is, but he's one of those two things. This is the man that Jesus helps. Why is that notable? There's a few reasons why. First of all, this guy's a governmental leader. He has power. 
He wields the power of the sword. He has people under him who answer to him. And this one, despite his high social status, makes himself subservient to Jesus. He comes to Jesus and says, Sir, can you heal my son? He comes to a homeless, wandering Jewish rabbi. One that he should be bossing around. And he makes himself subservient to him. Something to think about doesn't matter to Jesus what our power is, what our position is, what our prestige is. It doesn't matter to Jesus that this man is hated by Israel. This man comes to Jesus and he accepts. Anyone who comes to Jesus, regardless of social status, national heritage, or even religion, this guy may have been a full-blown Roman. He may have been a total pagan. If they come to Jesus in faith, Jesus receives them. Look again at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This question, who is Jesus, is the foundational starting point for understanding the Christian faith. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the combination of those two things makes him chief among us. We all. Regardless of our background or our histories, we owe him our love and our servitude. And what that means is we owe him our whole life. He's king of me and king of you and king of your family, right? As this father believes, his family believes with him. We are to live all of life in response to him because of who Jesus is. Jesus is king. He is your Lord. So that leads to the second question. What does it mean to believe in him then? Because it's on the basis of faith that this man is accepted. It has nothing to do with his social status. It has nothing to do with his national heritage. It has nothing to do with his religion. And we can include in that good works. This guy may have been a total jerk. It had nothing to do with that. Because he believed Jesus, he was accepted. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? So the first question, who is Jesus? This is the, the dividing line between orthodoxy and heresy between Christian and non-Christian. But this second question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? This is a question where there's disagreement within the Christian camp. But I believe that this text gives us a solid, practical example of the faith to which Jesus invites us. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Here's your next blank. The Christian faith is neither blind faith nor the certainty of sight. The Christian faith is neither blind faith nor the certainty of sight. Seeing is not believing, as it turns out. Some people say that faith in Jesus is just blind faith. They'll say, well, you can't know for certain that God exists. You can't know that Jesus came back from the dead. You can't know whether or not Jesus is Lord. So you you just got to believe. Just jump into the darkness and hope that he catches you. That's not Christian faith. Um, I, I don't think that's what Jesus calls us to. I don't think that's the kind of faith that Jesus encourages. But on the opposite side of the spectrum, you find some Christians saying that the Christian faith is something you can be absolutely certain of. And how? By wonders and signs. You can look at miraculous moments of God, answering prayer or doing some kind of spectacular thing, some supernatural work. And that experience, that moment of sight, that moment of certainty, that should hold the weight of your faith. That's not Christian faith either. 
Jesus, in fact, rebukes those who are seeking signs and wonders. So if Christian faith is not blind faith, and it's also not this certainty of sight, what is it? Here's your next blank. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith that is rooted in observation of what God has done in the past. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith that is rooted in observation of what God has done in the past. So the Christian faith invites you to think. It invites you to consider, to reflect, to look at what has God promised in the Bible? What has God done throughout history? And see whether or not he's kept his word. And based upon all those precedents, based upon what God has done through the centuries, through the millennia, choosing whether or not I trust him. Taking that first step. Here's your next blank. Concerning our faith, Jesus is seeking engagement, contemplation, and love. This is what he wants. Engagement, contemplation, and love. Jesus didn't want blind followers, and he also didn't want those expecting spectacle and thrills. He wanted people who would engage their reason, who would struggle with their problems. And why? Out of love. Out of love for God. Out of love for neighbor. And out of love for truth. Let's consider the official in our text as an example. Let's look back at verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all won't believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Let's look at how this man applied reason, chewed on what what God had said and done, and came to Jesus out of that. So he had heard something about Jesus. We don't know if he heard about the water being turned to wine, because when we saw that a month and a half ago, only a few people knew that that had happened. They just knew it was really great wine at the end of the party, right? So maybe he heard about that from one of the few people that saw it. Or maybe he had been hearing about Jesus healing or Jesus' preaching. He had heard from somebody something about Jesus. And when he hears that Jesus is back in the northern region of Israel, about a day's journey from where he is, he says, I've heard about it. Let's go check this out. So it wasn't blind faith. He knew something of Jesus. But it wasn't the certainty of sight either. He takes Jesus at his word. He comes... Jesus has not done any, anything spectacular. He, in fact, he sounds like a jerk. He's like, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And he just believes what Jesus says. He says, sir, my son's going to die. He says, go, your son will live. And it says he believed the word that Jesus spoke. So this isn't the certainty of sight either. He took Jesus at his word based upon what Jesus had done before. This is Christian faith. A person contemplates Jesus, then engages with Jesus all out of love. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for the truth. This man came out of love for whom? His son. (laughs) He knew that he loved his son. And he knew he had to do something and he had nothing but Jesus. Love motivated him to come to Christ. Let me explain it more systematically for you. So Christian faith is this. Next blank. Christian faith is... Is believing 
that God's words and deeds recorded in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible are true. That's where it starts. Yes, I believe that what God said in the Bible is true. In verse 50, the official believed, heard what Jesus said, and believed his word. That's it. That's Christian faith. Hearing what God has said in the Bible through his son and through the prophets and believing it. Second, here's your next blank. Christian faith is believing that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. Christian faith is believing that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. If you, if you want to know the Christian faith in its simplest form in a sentence, I'm pretty sure that's it. The Christian faith, our belief, is that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. He is the God-man who was raised from the dead after he died on the cross for our sins. But why should we believe any of this? Why believe the Bible? Why believe that Jesus is God and Lord? Why believe that he came back from the dead? It's not a blind faith, but it's also not certainty. It is still faith. Here's your next blank. The Christian faith is influenced by the experiences of others that we know and trust. Christian faith is influenced by the experiences of others that we know and trust. So this official, whether he was Jewish or Roman or whatever, he must have known somebody who either knew Jesus or saw Jesus or heard of Jesus, and he told this man about it. Somebody he trusted shared with him something that they knew of Jesus, their experience influenced his faith. Ordinarily, Christian faith doesn't happen in a vacuum. If you're a Christian, it's because you know a Christian who has experienced God, who has experienced Jesus, and their experience was a precedent for you to learn from. Maybe it was your parents, maybe it was your friend, it may have been a preacher on TV, it may have been a Gideon who gave you a Bible. I don't know. But there was some Christian in the chain that had experienced God and told you something or communicated something to you about what they had experienced of God. And what do we do? We listen to them. We apply reason. We weigh what they said. And it's from that basis that Christian faith grows. But Christian faith is not only influenced by others' experiences of God. Here's your next blank. The Christian faith is also influenced by our own experiences of God. God does things in our lives that strengthen our faith, that help us to know him, to love him, and to desire to be closer to him. Did you notice, I hadn't noticed until I was working on this sermon, the official believes more than one time in this text. Did you see that? Look at verses 50 through 53 again, and we'll see him believe twice. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, he's applying reason. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. I find this fascinating. There's sort of this initial belief in Jesus. He took Jesus at his word. But then when Jesus healed his son, the official believes again. Why? Because of his experience of Jesus. Our faith grows and develops because of the testimony and of experience of others. But it also grows and develops as we experience God ourselves. Your religious experiences of God are not to be tossed out as subjective, emotional, and meaningless. 
God does what he wants, when he wants, to reveal himself to you. Now, we use our reason. We test the things we experience to see if they sound right and that it agrees with Scripture. But I have had spiritual experiences of God that I can't explain. And those things have helped me to believe. It's not spectacles that brought about certainty, but I've seen prayers answered that I thought could never be answered. I've had strange spiritual experiences that I can't explain other than Jesus is real and is a part of my life. And I know that those of you who are Christians, many of you have had these same experiences where God showed up and showed off his power and glory and love in your life and you believed once more. That, is, that influences our faith, doesn't it? And here's what I think that demonstrates about faith. It's your next blank. Christian faith is not a static reality. It's not something you do one time and it's done and you now live in this state of believing. No, it's not a static reality, but it's something that grows and changes as we grapple with what God has said in the scriptures and with what we and others experience of God. As we grapple with the scriptures and, we, and what we experience and what others experience of God, our faith grows. Y'all remember, I'm going off script, it's always dangerous. Y'all remember back in the Old Testament, Jacob... Uh, who really was, in many ways, uh, sort of the father of, of Israel, or at least uh, Abraham's son, um, J- or grandson. Jacob uh, wrestled with God. God appeared to him one night, and they fought all night long. God, in, in a body, seemingly, in some kind of physical form, came and wrestled with Jacob and broke his hip. And it was after that that he gave Jacob a new name. What was that name? Kids, y'all remember? Israel. You know what Israel means? He who wrestles with God. That's the name that God assigned to his people. That's faith. It's wrestling with God. Looking at what he said in the scriptures. Knowing what he has objectively said about himself. And then living life. Life's hard a lot of the time. You struggle. You sin. You doubt, you fall down, you fail. And as we try to come to terms with who God is and what his scripture has said, it feels a lot like wrestling. That's the Christian faith. It's not a one-time thing or a constant unchanging spiritual state. Jesus invites you to contemplation, to engagement with him, to love. And as we struggle with God... And with what God says in the Bible, as we experience the great love and power and holiness of God in our lives, as we hear what others experience of Jesus, our faith adapts, it changes, it grows. That's one of the reasons it's important that God is gracious and patient and forgiving, because not all the changes to our faith along the way are are healthy or good. And our growth is not always as quick as it should be, but God never leaves us or forsakes us in that process. He walks with us to help us as our faith develops and grows. But it all begins with, who do you think Jesus is? Do you believe that he is your Lord, the God-man? Do you believe that God has raised him from the dead? Ask yourself that question, really. Who do you think Jesus is? What is his identity? What do you think about his resurrection? The Christian faith invites you to contemplate these ideas, to engage with Jesus personally, and to do it out of love 
for God, for neighbor, and even love of the truth. But what does all this accomplish? That's our final question. What does faith in Jesus actually do? What does it accomplish, right? I mean, that's, the, that's spirituality, right? Uh, yeah, I believe whatever you want, as long as it helps you. So how, how, how does this help us? And I, I, here's the answer I think is implicit, though not explicit. It's implicit in our text. Your next point. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you also will be raised from the dead. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you also will be raised from the dead. Now, nobody in our text today got raised from the dead. This child is almost dead. Could put a Monty Python joke in there. But I want to argue that Jesus' healing of the boy is only a half miracle. I don't want to diminish Jesus' power. I don't want to diminish how big of a deal this was for this child and especially for his family. But here's the weird thing. This kid died again later. Maybe he got old. Maybe he had an accident. Maybe he had some other illness down the road. We we don't know from the Bible. We we just know this is how the world works. He wasn't raised to eternal life. He was kept from dying this time. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus actually from the dead after he'd been dead for three days. And while that's amazing and astonishing... Lazarus died again later. It's only a half miracle. I'm sure Lazarus was grateful, but dying a second time, I wouldn't want to do it twice. (laughs) But when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was different. Jesus' resurrection was forever. So Jesus is still in his body today. The same body that was raised from the dead on the first Easter... That same body is still alive today. And that is what Jesus promises to do for all who believe in him. In the next chapter of John's gospel, John chapter 5, Jesus says this. Look in your worship guide. I've got it printed for you there. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice, which is how Jesus refers to himself, and come out of their graves. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, these verses won't surprise you at all. Uh, Jesus has been consistently, chapter to chapter, offering to different kinds of people eternal life. It's like his eternal life tour in this part of the, the Gospel of John. But what is the nature of eternal life? Those who believe in Jesus, one day when the resurrected Jesus returns, we will be raised from the dead as he was to live with him forever. In physical bodies, together with each other and with him. This is the Christian hope that results from the Christian faith, that one day the resurrected Jesus will return to raise people from the dead, to restore the earth to perfection, and to live with us forever. Real, bodily, tangible, eternal life. And so it matters whether you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus in this life, in eternity, 
you will find great joy in being raised from the dead. You will live forever with Jesus and his people. But even before you get there, we experience eternal life even now. We experience a new sense of joy and meaning, just like this boy and his family did. He'll do amazing things in your life. But one day, we're all going to die. That much is inevitable. But if you believe in Jesus, that death will not last forever. You, like Jesus, will be raised again to live forever together with God and his people in a renewed creation. And that's the invitation of Easter. Really, it's the invitation of the Christian faith. It's a hope beyond imagining. This official came hoping against hope that his son could be spared from a deadly fever, and he was. But the Christian faith offers even more than that. Those who have Christian faith will be raised from the dead. Those who believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, they themselves will experience resurrection one day. This is the Christian faith and the Christian hope. So I ask the question, what is your faith? Is it gas pump faith? A private set of ideas that may or may not be true but have a positive impact on your life? Or is it a more traditional faith, a set of claims that is exclusive unto itself? Regardless of which faith is yours, what's it like? What is your faith's quality, its content, its aim? And I encourage you to strongly consider the Christian faith. Jesus invites neither blind faith nor the certainty of sight. He invites you to a reasonable faith. It's rooted in contemplation of what God has done and what God has said. So look back at what God has said. Look back at what God has done through the centuries. Look to the Christians that you know and see what God has done in their lives and see what God has done in your lives. Grapple with what God has said in the scriptures. Grapple with your own experience of him and therein discover that Jesus is Lord and that God has truly raised him from the dead. And no doubt many people hesitate to join the Christian faith because they're afraid of what it'll mean for their lifestyle, for their worldview. To say that Jesus is Lord says that I'm not Lord and I'm not in charge anymore. Uh, There might be some fear that I'm going to have to change the way I live if all this is true. Let me reassure you, following Jesus will change everything. (laughs) It'll turn your life upside down. But before you ever get to that, It all begins with the question of who is he? His lordship and his resurrection. And as you come to terms with those two things, the rest of the stuff is going to work itself out down the road. So join the Christian faith. Believe with us and live your life with resurrection and eternal life as your great hope. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for the resurrection. Paul said it. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we, above all, are to be most pitied. But we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. We believe that Jesus is Lord, and we profess it with our mouths and with our lives. And so, Father, I want to pray for all those here, that each of us would begin to contemplate, to chew on, to grapple with who you are more deeply that we would reckon with the experiences we've had in our lives and we'd reckon with the experiences of others that our faith would grow and deepen, that we would wrestle. Father, I pray that you'd break some of us. You had to break Jacob's hip before he would really, truly understand who you are. So, Holy Spirit, do your work. 
humble us, bring us to the point of absolute need of you and absolute submission to you that we might find you to be the great lover of our souls. We need you and we ask for your work in our midst. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.